You know, I once did an entire video just about the Borg. It's weird to think about. There are precious few races that evoke the same kind of automatic reaction in fans of Star Trek as the Borg do. I'll never forget. First time I was playing Star Trek Online with my friend Third. We got to a mission where we had to board a Borg ship, a, a sphere, a small ship, that was disabled. And his reaction was, can we not do this mission? Because it was the Borg. But it's interesting to think of the Borg in historical context of where we were at at this point in time. Before we even talk about the episode, we have to talk about the Borg. And we have to talk about Maurice Hurley. And the Writers Guild strike. Now, I've already kind of covered all of this, but as a quick reminder, as a consequence of the Writers Guild strike, they couldn't do what they wanted to do. This has had, this particular writer strike has had a significant deleterious effect on television in general. How much is a matter of debate? Uh, most people kind of disagree on the specifics of what changed and how things changed as a result of this strike. And I'm not saying the strike was right or wrong. That's not something I'm even interested in. What I am interested in is the impact it had. And of course I'm interested because it very significantly impacted something I care a great deal about, Star Trek. Originally there was supposed to be a, a season-wide thing, which was then shortened to a trilogy, which was then basically shortened to this one episode about the Borg. The Borg were supposed to be this new insect-like race, which was preying on the Romulans and the Federation and all that fun stuff. I've kind of already covered all that. But what I want to mention <clears throat> is the idea was so strong and resonated with so many people that there was still a lot of push for the Borg to come back, for them to still do them to some extent or another. By the time we actually get to this point, where we're actually ready to start working on this episode, it was decided that they would have to fundamentally change the Borg because of budget issues. Insect races are kind of difficult to do. You might ask Enterprise about that, for example. But I, the direction they took with them, by what amounts to complete happenstance, fits perfectly with what the Borg would develop into. Cybernetic beings, the idea of assimilation, isn't even mentioned once in this entire episode because it wasn't conceived of yet. And this is why we have to talk about the weirdness of the Borg. Because they're originally supposed to be insects who rom yom yom. Then they were redesigned into this format. Then they were redesigned again into the best of both worlds format. And then one more time in first contact. Each of these fundamentally changed the Borg in a significant way, and each of these was a retcon, in, in, in retroactive continuity. In other words, each one of these changed the Borg out of universe as if they had always been this way in-universe, even though, if you pay attention, it doesn't really line up that neatly. In fact, there are attempts made here or there, we'll actually mention this during Best of Both Worlds, to try and excuse some of these changes in-universe, but for the most part, there's no real excusing most of these changes in-universe. This is just them changing their minds and what they wanted to do with this. I am not complaining, per se, merely stating a fact. Thus, it is ironic that the Borg themselves are just as inconsistent as the principal character of this episode, Q. We'll talk about him in just a moment. So, it's hard to really get a good handle on what the Borg actually are, because what the Borg are varies quite literally from episode to episode. There are some chunks of Borg, 
which are reasonably similar, most notably a lot of Voyager, although not all of it, portrays the Borg in a similar fashion. And let's just say that I'm of the opinion that sometimes Voyager did the Borg very, very well. And then sometimes they didn't. <laughs> I want to also mention really quick that this episode is, is one of the only... This is arguably the only episode that Maurice Hurley actually wrote. Um, he's obviously done script work on several other episodes. I've mentioned that uh, in the Royale, for example. But this one is his episode, and it really shows... Because there's a lot of continuity, which is weird still at this point in history. Remember, this is the late 80s. Strong continuity in television was still a relatively uncommon thing, and usually relegated to certain types of television. Um, Star Trek in particular didn't really do this kind of continuity. And to explain what I mean, this is mostly setting continuity. In other words, they directly reference events that have previously happened, and those events have some kind of impact on future events, but it is not string continuity, which is each episode literally is just one part of a greater story arc. That's a different kind of thing. But Maurice Hurley was always really big on continuity, and while I disagree with the man on many, many things, uh, there are two things he did that I'll always give him credits for, and this is one of those, that, that continuity focus. The second is, of course, the Borg themselves, but we already talked about that. The other thing I wanted to mention about his writing style is that there's several points in this episode which logically don't actually make sense. Literal plot holes. I'll give you the most obvious one right now. So, the Enterprise has encountered the Borg, and they raise shields, and literally the next scene, it's seconds later, shows the Borg beaming onto the ship. Which means the Borg can beam through the shields. Now, this isn't like an edit or a problem or whatever, because later on, shortly thereafter, one of the next major points becomes the Borg trying to drain their shields. Now, this actually doesn't make sense, given what the Borg were capable of doing. A second drone was able to effectively nullify Worf in his attempt to de disable it, because, you know, bzz, right? We actually saw the adapting thing in this episode. So... <laughs> Like, why is there any conflict here? The Borg should have just won if they could just beam through the shields, right? You know, just little little problems like that. Logical loopholes that you can tell he didn't really think through. Um, that is actually very much Maurice Hurley's style overall. Uh, probably helps to explain some of the Royale, too, if you want to think about it. But this episode had several things going for it. First of all... This was an episode where they really started to polish certain aspects of the show. And I know that's a weird thing to comment on. But there are three specific things that they really pushed forward at this point in time. First was the sound effects department. Now, there's actually several sound effects that are introduced for the first time in this episode. The one that really caught me immediately was the tiny little that plays whenever the screen magnifies. That'll be a recurring thing, like, throughout Star Trek, henceforth. There'll be some kind of a uh, henceforth as a consequence of that. And that's a minor thing, but speaking as someone who has worked in sound engineering and, and understands sound editing and design, it's those little things that help so much, because that's just one thing of several things they do in this episode. Tiny little sound effects or little oomphs that just help add to the scene. It's the old saying, really good sound design is the stuff you don't notice. It just adds to the moment. And that is all over the place in this episode, and will continue to be a, a trend for Star Trek going forward, both TNG and DS9 and Voyager and Enterprise. Um, <clears throat> the other thing, the second thing that really this episode really had going for it, 
was the music of Ron Jones specifically designed to evoke something unsettling without being creepy. One of the things I complained about... Oh, God, I can't even think of his name. The other... Dennis McCarthy's music was that it was too obvious. It, it, when he when he wrote creepy music, it was... You know, it was incredibly like, oh, my God, what is going on? When Ron Jones does creepy, he does something quiet and moroseful. Something so silent... Not silent, but so quiet that you could almost not even hear it. It's just there in the background. But it's doing exactly what it's supposed to. It's putting you on edge. I legitimately was actually like tense for several parts of this episode, even though I've seen it a dozen, dozen times. And of course, I know where this, this fruit franchise is going. And yet I was still just... Because the atmosphere and tension of this episode are phenomenal. There's this overwhelming sense of dread in the entire episode. And in fact, almost all of the episode is very quiet in pacing and tone until it reaches the finale, where it really just starts like this sprinting race towards the finish line in a way that really helps emphasize all of that buildup and that dread. They spend like 50 minutes, it's exaggeration, like 40 minutes establishing just how horrible the Borg are. And then the Borg finally decide to come after them. And with all of that establishment, we now know how terrible this situation is. And so again, credit to Maurice Hurley for the construction of that. Because with all of that establishment, we now have context. That is always the great uh, advantage of continuity when it comes to writing. It gives you reason to care in one direction or another. The final thing that they really had going for them was the design of the Borg themselves. First of all, absolute credit to the uh, the makeup and uh, costume and set designs and ship designs. Pretty much everyone on board just did an absolutely phenomenal job of portraying these people as just familiar enough whilst at the same time being completely alien. It was intended, like they deliberately used these humanoids for budget reasons, but then they said, why don't we use that to an effect? In other words, it's, it's the classic concept of they were limited, so they used their limitations as an advantage. Now, it's, that is one of those easier said than done things. But every time it's pulled off, oh, it's amazing. Because what we see in the Borg is what we could become. I mean, assimilation isn't even a thing yet. But we see people who are not people. We see a person who is not an individual. And we see, you know, we see the babies and we see the, the, the alcoves and a ship that seems to have familiar concepts and yet at the same time is in such an alien setting. And, of course, the ship itself deserves special praise. I'll actually talk about the cube itself later when it shows up, because there's they do some good stuff with that. But all of this combined made the Borg far more memorable than many other bad guys of the week that we've had on Star Trek. And we've had many. If we were to assume all of Star Trek is 100% canon, which we basically can't for out of, you know, for real-life reasons, out-of-character reasons... There are many species throughout Star Trek which are horrifically powerful and dangerous, to the point where they would make the Borg look like chumps. How many times, even in TNG already, how many times has there been some super powerful alien with some mega strong ship that can just and just completely win and, and disable their technology and all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, how many times has that been a thing already? That was also a thing back in TOS. And will be a thing in DS9, and will be a thing on Voyager, and so forth and so on. The, this is this is one of the biggest problems of the bad guy, the weak problem. It's that you you have to make them sufficiently dangerous to be a threat, 
And in so doing, you have to question, well, why, why haven't these people with this tremendous power ever had any impact on the greater galactic community? Why are they never heard from before or since, right? The Borg, thanks to their presentation and all the other things I've mentioned and will mention in the future, managed to slide out of Bad Guy of the Week because of how memorable they are. How many of you remember the Hoosnock? If Just off the top of my head. How, how many of you remember the Edo God? Um, how about the... I can't even remember their names. The robot peoples over on Voyager. They're in one episode, right? Like, I'm sure several of you can answer yes to this. But the larger sample size I take, the, the more no's I'm going to get out of that. Because most of those were just not all that memorable. They were threatening and then they went away. But the Borg. I also want to mention that this episode got uh, two Emmys. One for sound editing and uh, one for sound mixing. I just mentioned that as an amusing point, given what I said earlier. So let's talk about Sonia Gomez before we move forward. Now, Sonia Gomez is an interesting and somewhat divisive character amongst the fandom, in my experience, because... She was designed to be a love interest for Jordy in order to facilitate the story arc that I've actually already referenced to you guys. The intended story arc where he would lose his visor and as a consequence be able to have LeVar Burton just use his eyes from that point on, right? Now, as I've already mentioned, they ended up torpedoing that particular plot arc, but they were still kind of planting seeds. The idea would be that Gomez would be the final stepping stone for him being able to take this, because she was going to be in several episodes and fall in love with him and him with her, and they're going to be like, ah, oh, blah, blah. And then he, you know, I, that would be the excuse. I want to see the love of my life with my own eyes. You know, insert Darth, you know, Darth Vader quote here. <laughs> and so he would get rid of the visor. Now, there were two problems with that. One is the one I already mentioned. They were already kind of uncertain about the visor idea in general. And so, while they were still doing some prep work for getting rid of it, they hadn't committed to that yet. And the second problem was with Gomez herself. Not the actress. I actually have no complaints about the actress. What I do have a complaint with is the writer. <laughs> See, Go this is Gomez's first episode. She is in one more after this. Manhunt, I want to say. And she's treated as bumbling comic relief. Now, this is where the confluence of coincidence kind of happens when it comes to creating fiction. Because you have some writers who are trying to introduce a new love interest for Jordy so that they could lead into a new character arc. And then you have another writer who is, for whatever reason, not on board with that, who says, I need a little bit of comedy in this extremely dark episode. Now, that makes sense. You know, at least on paper, the idea of introducing comedic elements to a dark work is a very old concept. Anybody who's seen Empire Strikes Back knows what I'm talking about. For those of you who don't remember, that episode had a strangely large amount of light moments of levity and actual jokes scattered throughout, specifically to try and uplift it from the incredibly dark nature of the film. Um, most films, movies, you know, games, books, television shows... I, I, I just realized I said films twice, tend to have that kind of a concept. If it's just all dark all the time, it doesn't have the same impact because it becomes, you know, becomes the norm. And it tends to wind down the viewer to the point where some people are not going to like it at all and some people aren't going to like it as much. So on paper, having Gomez be this lighter aspect of the episode makes a degree of sense. I disagree with how he approached it because Gomez is basically, ha ha, Here's this, you know, clueless ensign right at the beginning, and it's bumbling humor, which is one of the most basic 
I hate to use the term lowbrow, but you know, it, it's it's just an extremely basic, easy to write, not really complicated form of humor, which, in my opinion, is just kind of doing a disservice for this kind of an episode. It would be basically like. It would be like Jar Jar just bumbling around for a bit, and then, you know, the Borg happen, right? Because that's the same type of humor. That sort of bumbling, physical comedy thing. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that type of comedy. I'm just saying if that is your comedic moments, is, oh, I'm a klutz, I feel like you should probably add a little bit more than that. Especially in a show like this one. Just my opinion. <sighs> so... <clears throat> There's Gomez, and I actually don't have much else to say about her, unfortunately. Then we have to talk about Guinan. So, Whoopi Goldberg nails Guinan, as usual. She really... <laughs> I'm actually not a huge fan of Whoopi Goldberg in general. Not because I dislike her, but because she hasn't been in a lot of roles that I like her in. And I don't think that's entirely her fault. You know, an actor's got to eat, after all. But, I, you know, there's so many films she's been in where I'm just like, really? But I will always give her credit because she always just perfectly nails that exact slice of understanding and wise while at the same time not being perfect or all-knowing. She comes across as someone who is experienced, seasoned, if you will, but not someone who is omnipotent, not someone who... She also, she also approaches her, her role with a great deal of humility. I think that helps tremendously as well. It would be very easy for someone in guidance position to be incredibly arrogant and unsufferable. And that would just make me hate her. But instead, Whoopi Goldberg presents her with that kind of simple humanity of, you know, I'm just a bartender. I'm just hanging out doing my thing. And I think that adds all the more weight when she says things and people pay attention. There's this great bit where Jordy is talking with Gomez, and Jordy looks up and notices Guinan is just staring out the window, troubled. And he's like, is something wrong? And she says, I, I don't know, you know, nothing. And Jordy hesitates for a moment and says, I better get to engineering. I love that, because with that simple statement and that admission of uncertainty, Jordy immediately is like, okay, yep, something is happening, something is serious, I'm going to get to my post. I love that. It's a nice, subtle little touch there. So then, of course, we have to talk about Q. Now, I mentioned this earlier. Q is an inconsistent character. We can argue inconsistencies in character. People have been doing this for years for many, many different franchises. But I have to admit, as a personal preference, when I know enough about the behind-the-scenes thing to know that the reason a character is different is because of different writers disagreeing with each other... That's the perspective I usually take. The writers disagree with each other, and that's why the character's different. I don't try to weave those together in character unless I am challenged to do so. So I look at Q as a very good example of that. Every now and again, he's this, and then he's this, and then he's this. There's three rough categories of what Q is generally presented as. The, uh, you know, the overwhelming might of the, the, you know, agent of the continuum, the imp who's just here because he's bored, and the, the final one, which is harder to summarize. It's also how I believe he is in this episode, although that is debatable. It's the idea that Q is someone who really does legitimately care about humanity as a concept, as a species, and Picard and the crew in particular. Not in the same sense that we would identify caring as, but to the point where they do matter to him, and he does want to help them in his own particular idiom in a way that amuses him, and in a way that makes sense to his particular sense of 
um, perspective. So not really what I would call a good person, but someone who does actually want to benefit us, even if he is benefiting himself at the same time. In fact, I've had a headcanon for a while now, that, and I think I mentioned this briefly back in the last Q episode, that the continuum as a whole felt threatened by humanity and their development and were you know, basically trying to keep humanity down, and it is Q himself who disagreed with that assessment and thus did little things here and there to prod humanity forward because he found them interesting. That's the perspective of Q I prefer most. Uh, we see that here. We see that in uh, Inner Light, I want to say. And we see that in All Good Things and arguably a couple others as well. Uh, Death Wish comes to mind. But it is, of course, valid to say that that's not Q because that's not how he's always portrayed. Q is portrayed in multiple different ways because different writers. So, Q kidnaps Picard. <laughs> Wonderful logic there. I have to admit, I've, I've had similar ideas. Like, if I had Q powers, it's like, look, I need to talk with you really quick. And then we're just over here. <laughs> you know, completely different planet. Like, all right, let's chat. You know, it's a great way to get someone's attention immediately and more or less focus their attention on you because they're on the moon or whatever, right? Now, Picard is wonderfully uh, stubborn about the whole thing. And I kind of like that, as weird as that may sound, because... It's part, of, it's part of Picard's character, but also, I think, what, part of what makes him appealing to Q. He doesn't bow and scrape, but he also isn't unnecessarily objectionable. By which I mean, Picard's main problem is that Q didn't ask, he just kind of did. Once Q portrays his case, which Picard agreed to, Picard gives it a fair hearing, actually says how interesting the idea was, and doesn't reject the, co the concept out of slight. In fact, the final reason why he admits he, he says no, and he thinks about it for quite a bit, is that he doesn't trust Q, and for no other reason. I like that. I like that perspective. And it shows Picard to be more than just someone who, you know, is a little bit too uptight. Someone who is willing to deal with things on his own terms, is willing to be reasonable as long as the other side is willing to be reasonable. So then, of course, Q snaps back. There's some great transitions. There's this shot where he just he's bouncing the ball, and then they're on 10 forward. And, of course, there's this wonderful transition later, which apparently took some issue to do, uh, where he snaps out, and then the chair springs forward, and the, and the pillow on the, on the back of the chair like falls down because his head isn't there anymore. Lovely little stuff like that. <clears throat> Anyways, so Q and Guinan's backstory is never really fleshed out to any significant degree. This is also the first time that the implication is given that Guinan is more than simple human. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, up until now, Guinan has only been portrayed as human. This is the first time it's made clear that she has some kind of supernatural senses that can bypass these things, and that will come up in the future as well. But I do kind of like how, despite their obvious antagonizment, both Q and Guinan seem to view humanity in relatively the same light, even if they disagree with their findings, each other's findings, I mean. Because Q says, they're not ready. And Guinan says, no, they're not. But they will be. They'll get there. And you could just kind of see that just there's this little snippet of the two arguing. For the longest time when I was younger, I thought Guinan was another Q. Or another being like the Q, another energy being, in other words, who is at that level, who is just kind of hanging out with them because she has a, a different mentality. This is a reference only some of you will get, but I thought that basically Q was more like the Daedra 
and Guinan was more like the Aedra. And that's a whole other topic, so let's not even cover that. Let's just keep moving on here. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, it's like, uh, they, they start talking about how humanity isn't ready for what's out there. Now, that's an interesting concept in its own right. It also is something that TNG desperately needed, in my opinion. Because TNG, for all of its quality and downsides up till now, hasn't really found its identity yet. TNG has been the Winds of Change era, but for the most part, it's just a Tuesday for them. And while that's enjoyable in its own right, especially as breather episodes now and again, you need to have some kind of thing, some shtick, to really keep a show going long-term like that. Deep Space Nine would do the other option. Um, so let me, let me rewind a little bit what I mean by that. For TNG, in my opinion, they had two options. One would be to showcase them really pushing the boundaries. You know, everything that we previously knew about Star Trek has become normal, understood, and, you know, cataloged, diplomatized, etc. You know, we're at peace with the Klingons. We have an understanding with the Romulans. You know, we know what's going on with the Cardassians, etc., etc., right? So now it's time to start stretching out, and then we start seeing the really new stuff, which is both incredible and awesomely terrifying. You know, to get into the really mean stuff. Stuff like the Borg. Stuff like the Dominion. The other alternative is to go inward, to shrink down the camera a little bit and really start discussing more of the uh, political, social, and dynamic issues that are going on now that we have settled. Okay, it's not the Old West anymore like it was the original series, and now we know what's going on here. Now what? And there's a lot of story potential there, as Deep Space Nine showed, but obviously they didn't want to do that for this show, and I don't blame them. So I liked this direction, this push into what would become the identity of TNG. Ironically, it is this exact same idea that would eventually push Voyager, although that show also had problems with its identity, mostly because they kept changing executive producers up until, like, season four, but I digress. So I love, again, you know, microbrain! Q's great. John Delancey's awesome. Um, I mentioned the Q thing earlier. I want to say one other thing really quick. To me... This is probably the first time we've seen Q be Q, my opinion. Because we had him in an encounter at Farpoint. Well, he was, he was actually okay. You know, better than I remembered. But still just kind of there. You know, he's, I mean, as I mentioned back then, it was basically Trelane again. Uh, that was deliberate and intentional. People were even referencing that. And then uh, you had him in Q-less, I think? I can never remember which one comes next. And that was just kind of like, okay, that's weird. And kind of creepy, but whatever. Then we have Q Who, and this is Q at his Qiest. Well, that's not true, but this is the first time I feel like we're really seeing the character. He's still a little bit, uh, shall we say, extroverted, but he doesn't go into the point of total ludicrousness. At every point in time, you can take him seriously, and he doesn't tip over the line anymore. Instead, there's wonderful scenes where he's just he's just like, hey, you know. He even, there's this one bit where he says to Picard, you mock me, and Picard says no. Like, a little bit too quickly, as, as if Picard understands just how dangerous mocking Q would be. Because Picard does understand the power of the being he's talking to, and is legitimately frightened of it, just trying not to show it, because he's Picard. And then there's this wonderful bit later, which also ties into that, where Riker, who is just angry, says, you, co- you know, you cost us the lives of 18 members of my crew. And Q's response is, oh, please. As if, and that is such a perfectly Q response. I mean, what is Riker going to do? And why does Q care? As he points out later, functionally, that is just a bloody nose. But I'll get to that point later. And Picard actually reaches out and puts a hand on Riker's arm like, eh. 
He doesn't say anything. There's just this subtle, you know, pull it back, Riker. Because of how dangerous this situation really is. It's lovely the way they present that. Anyways. So they never really explain Guinan's past. Uh, we find out eventually she is an Elorian, which is a long-lived species, which has some things going for it, and there'll be some retcons about that, but I do like how the two interact in this episode. There's some good dynamic between the two. As I mentioned, I do love Picard's, the fact that he takes Q's idea seriously, and finally only says no because he doesn't trust him. But that brings up a very interesting question. What is Q after here? I bring this up because this is probably a plot hole, if I'm being completely honest. But at the same time, I'm willing to accept that it's not, because one of the things Hurley was really big on was continuity. We know he was doing a lead-up to Q that was supposed to be happening, and we know he intended to use Q and the Borg in the future. So, I think we can argue that this is not a plot hole, but actually rather kind of showcasing part of what Q was after. Because what does Q do? He shows up and says, Hey, I'm bored. Let me join your crew. And then he introduces them to the Borg, and then Picard says, all right, you win. I need you. And then Q leaves. Why? Because Q has won in every sense of the word. Obviously, he could just and win. But in this case, he managed to outmaneuver Picard and the rest of the Enterprise crew, positioned them such that they had to admit of their own free will that he had won. And then he leaves because, well, he had already gotten what he was already after. Granted... The idea, I, I like the idea that he was impressed with Picard. He gives this speech about, and it feels sincere, especially with John Delancey's performance, uh, to Picard at the end about, you know, a lesser man would have rather died than, than taken their medicine on that one and admitted their loss, you know. But you actually did that. And you get the impression that he was legitimately impressed that Picard was able to swallow his pride in this manner, keeping Q interested in Picard in particular and humanity in general. And, of course, we know it, well, we can theorize what Q is really after. We can speculate. Before I answer myself, what do you think Q was after? What is it you believe Q wanted out of this encounter? Because there's several answers to this, and I've heard several valid arguments for all of them, all the ones I've heard anyways. Now, I've kind of already given away my opinion. I think this is Q acting as the shepherd. While he is doing so in a way that amuses himself, he is nevertheless trying to guide them on a path. And so he shoves them to the Borg early, way earlier than they should have been. And now the Borg are aware of them. And, spoiler alert, the Borg are coming. I think he did this to give Starfleet a wake-up call, to give the Federation, to give humanity a wake-up call and say, hey, there is so much worse out there. Because... This is going to sound strange, but I want you to really take the, the camera and zoom it back by several years. I want you to picture a Starfleet that encounters the Dominion and yet has not had Wolf 359. That one point right there alone really says all I think I need to say about this point. This was a massive wake-up call, a harsh brutal and unforgiving lesson that changed the, the Star Trek in-universe and out going forward. And I think he did this to start those dominoes in effect with the intent of helping us and hoping that we make it through on the, to the other side. 
Um, there is this really, really great scene. Oh, God, I love the atmosphere of this episode where, you know, he's cues flash them out there, and Guinan doesn't even ask where they are. It's just, you know, they walk over, Guinan, your people have been in this part of space, and she's like, yep. What can you tell us? And Guinan says, if I were you, I would start back now. There is something so chilling about that. Because remember, this episode has been doing a lot to establish Guinan as someone who, while not, again, omnipotent, nevertheless, or excuse me, omniscient, sorry, I'm using the wrong term, uh, while not omniscient, knows things. And she reveals a great deal of her knowledge in this episode after this point. But the point is, they have established that Guinan is someone who is in the know. And when, when the one person on the board who knows this area's response is, we need to get out of here now, even knowing that it would take years, decades, actually, to get back, that's terrifying. It's pro- I'm trying to explain it, and I'm failing. It's like being cast out into the middle of the ocean, and just, you're in the middle of the ocean right now. And I say the ocean because you don't know which. You don't know where. There's no land in sight. Um, there's no, like, weather formations or ships going by. Nothing. You're just in the middle of the ocean. You have no idea where you are, and you have no idea what's around you. And then, to really add to that, the first thing, the first thing they encounter, and you can't tell me Q did this on accident, is a cube. Like, I'm not even sure there's a real-life equivalent for how terrifying that is. You know, Cthulhu looks up and is like, hey. You know, they see the cube. And this is where I talk about the cube. Once again, credit to Whoopi Goldberg's acting. She acts rigid and terrified in a very quiet and restrained manner through most of this episode. Probably one of the only outbursts she ever has is when they talk about when they're going over to the Borg Cube to investigate it. And her reaction is, what? I'll talk about that briefly now since I just brought it up. I want you to imagine with all that we know now about the Borg, looking back, like imagine you... You know, if you're watching this, there's a pretty good chance you know about the Borg. Statistically speaking, <laughs> imagine you are right there in, in the meeting room, and Riker just said, I want to go and take an away team. Like, Guinan's reaction is almost exactly the same as ours would be, isn't it? What? You want to beam on board a Borg ship? You know, you're kidding. <laughs> Anyways... So, you know, there's just this quiet terror in her presentation. She also sits very rigidly in, like, every scene she's in. Like, like she's just taut the entire time. And of course she is. There's actually a bit where she's asked to check the view screen. And before that request comes in, we see her staring out the front of Ten Forward at the oncoming cube. God, how would that have felt? To, to see that and know what that means and know, truly know, just how helpless things have become. The mere fact that that cube is there means they have effectively already lost. And she knows that. It also helps to explain some of the way she voices a lot of her lines. She sounds resigned. Because they've already lost. The Borg are here. Well, that's that. So let's talk about the cube itself. They do a great deal to establish the cube as wonderful, something really kind of new and unique for Star Trek. We've had big ships before. We've had quite a few of them, actually. It's a very common concept in science fiction to have a bad guy with a big ship. And there, it's, it's obvious why. There's a lot of uh, strength and potential power in that kind of a visual uh, storytelling style. But the cube is enormous. 
It dwarfs the Enterprise. It's ugly. It's marred. And it's just a giant cube. We've never really seen anything like this in Star Trek. Yeah, we've seen some special effects that are frankly not that great in TOS, which kind of kind of follow the similar design, like the spear thing and all that. But this was... A, we always kind of acknowledged that that was because of the, the money and the budget and the technology at the time, right? This is something they went out of their way to design to look like this. This is not, you know, oh, well, we got some styrofoam and poked some holes in it. No, someone took a lot of time and effort to design that monstrosity. And then Data starts listing information about it, too, just to really hammer it in. No bridge, no command center, no crew quarters, no engineering. And, of course, the aesthetic of it is basically the opposite of aesthetics. It is designed solely for the sake of function and nothing else. It is more or less the exact opposite of what every other ship design has been approached by in Star Trek to date, and indeed in science fiction in general up to the modern era. The cube is unique, and that's the final thing that gives the Borg their memorability, because the Borg themselves are unique. While we have certainly had alien aliens here and there in science fiction, especially at this point, late 80s, Star Trek, most aliens were functionally allegories. I don't mean deliberately per se, but most of them were designed to be, you know, equivalents of certain types of cultures that we already have here on the planet Earth. Because we have thousands of cultures on Earth. It's kind of hard to get away from that. It's actually a problem I've had as a writer many times. When you're designing a new culture, inevitably it will be similar to one culture or another on Earth, or at least several bits of them, because there are so many. We've already had such a variety. It's... I've heard some writers uh, get uh, frustrated because, you know, people are automatically like, okay, well, there's Germany, and there's Russia, and there's the Ottomans, you know, like a Dragon Age. Everyone's automatically like, these are these people. I've done that too, right? We've all done that. The Borg don't really have that kind of allegory to real life. They are functionally the furthest extent of capitalism and communism if both were taken to their extremes. Everything. And I'm counting with some future stuff here as well, but everything to them is a resource to be consumed, whether it's people to be assimilated, technology to be assimilated, or actual resources in, and you know, to be taken in, energy, matter, etc. But they are also fully, to the furthest extent, communist, where there is no such thing as the individual, where everyone is everything, the actual concept of identity has been subsumed into the point where there is nothing other than the whole. In this way, we see something that is actually presented as not just alien, but quietly terrifying. Not overtly terrifying. This is not a Tyrannosaurus Rex bearing down at you at full tilt. This is an empty room where there are many corpses and no other ways out. And you hear something skittering. So, I already mentioned the shields part. <laughs> I don't have anything else to add to that. They beam through the shields. I like how one scout comes in and effectively overwhelms the Enterprise. And if it was really interested in actually assimilating, if we are to take retcons into account, that one scout could have beamed over, put a you know, few assimilation tubes into the thing, and alright, there we go. That's the end. The Enterprise D is assimilated. The closest excuse I have ever heard from anyone as to why this does not happen is that Q himself was directly interfering with the Collective's ability to function, ensuring that the Enterprise would survive long enough for his point to be made. 
That's, that's the closest I've ever heard for an excuse on that one. Because we see in the future how the Borg react to something new. They don't walk over and be like, huh. No, they walk over and be like, okay, let's see how we can assimilate this. <laughs> nice and efficient. I'm actually amused, if I may segue for a second, at how many things about the Borg are established here. Probably without meaning to. They are mentioned as being... Guinan makes this note that when they come after you, they'll come at you with everything. But that is demonstrably not true in this episode, and there are several statements which contradict that as well. Instead, this is most notably shown when they go over to the other ship, the Borg are e efficient to the point of it functionally being one of their biggest weaknesses. If they don't see any point in, a, in opposing you because you are not a threat to them, then they will not do anything about you until you become a threat. Uh, they kind of lack that predictive analysis kind of a thing. Furthermore, that also sh that efficiency is why the Borg will send one cube to assimilate the you know the beta quadrants and alpha quadrants. Keep in mind that that cube did nearly succeed at that task, so grain of salt. But the point is, the Borg could have easily sent thirty cubes or a hundred cubes. We know they have those kind of forces in the future, but they sent one because they judged that one was sufficient. I will actually talk more on this point when we get to Best of Both Worlds, so let's just see, leave that discussion for now. But there are elements of that efficiency weakness being presented here. <sighs> let's see. Um, they, this is our first introduction to the Borg voice. It's nowhere near as good as the later voices. In fact, it was so weird I didn't even really audibly identify it as the Borg at first. Um, there's this great bit. So I've kind of already mentioned, uh, you know, their, her reaction. What? But... I love uh, Guinan's statement. You know, how do we negotiate with these people? You don't. I myself have stated that one of the good things that Voyager did with the Borg is that they made it so that the Borg had to adapt, not literally to technology and to energy weapons or whatever, but to new concepts and ideas. The Borg actually being capable of something like negotiation is a completely new and alien thing to the Borg. And they were adapting to that. I liked that because, it, in my mind, that was the best path forward for actually managing to write the Borg so that they don't just win all the time. All, all the writers have flat out admitted the reason the Borg made so few appearances across TNG was not because they didn't want to, but because they were running out of ideas with what they could do with them. They had made them too powerful. And that is a very classic uh, problem and mistake when it comes to writing. You know, we've all had that problem at some point. All right, we've established this super mega villain. Ah, oh, crap, now what? <laughs> you know, you can't have them win, right? Anyways. Um, so, I just want to give very... I, I don't talk about the special edition stuff, or not the, you know, the, the Blu-ray version, which is what I've been watching for these, but I have to say, the touch-up on a lot of the little details when the, the slice of the Enterprise has been cut out was very nice. Even back in the day, I remember seeing, you could tell how where the decks were on the slice, but the new special edition makes it really, really precise, and I love the little attention to detail on that. I just wanted to give quick praise for that. So, um, I guess I'm ready to go to page two now. Yeah, I actually have two pages of notes for once. <laughs> it's also a quick little comment. It's really weird watching this episode now. After so much of the Borg has been written and established and present, presented in the future, compare and contrast almost any Voyager episode where we are on a Borg ship compared to this one. Now, I know time and effects and budgets have all changed. Voyager had a huge budget and a lot of backing in order to be able to do whatever the hell it wanted to. It's one of the benefits of being a flagship show. 
TNG was still struggling at this point in time, remember, and wouldn't really finally pick itself up until about season three, uh, at least financially. Obviously, critically, it was still it was starting to do well as of season two. But um, but I mentioned this because, like, in later episodes, everything is super dark on Borg ships and really, really green. Like, really green, right? And yet here, while there is a little bit of a green tone, for the most part, it's just a nice, you know, light gray kind of gunmetal gray thing, right? It, it made for an interesting different aesthetic to it, uh, which I found fascinating. Now, I mentioned the efficiency. Uh, there's the Borg babies thing. That's probably one of the bigger retcons about the Borg right there. That and the assimilation thing. I mean, which is funny because these are actually connected because no mention of assimilation is ever made. In fact, they flat out state that the Borg have no interest in the people, which is obviously very untrue given everything we learn in the future and technically in the past. But what we find instead is that they are they have these maturation chambers. Now, they actually reference this over on Voyager, uh, the, advanced, uh, the uh, rapid maturation chambers. But we also know that they have no problem with assimilating someone and then allowing them to age naturally. And I'm not really sure what the difference is or why there's a variance there. The best headcanon I've ever been able to come up with is that occasionally the Borg just needs a lot more drones for whatever reason, and so we'll basically build new drones when they can't just get a new, for lack of a better term, crop in order to assimilate. I got nothing else on that. So then they leave. They find out that the ship is repairing. This is when the episode kicks into the high drive. That moment, for whatever reason, is the realization to Picard at just what he's facing. Now, I bring this up because this is actually an interesting thing in hindsight. Looking back, we look at this like, yeah, of course they didn't do anything to the Borg. They just made them pause for a second as they reanalyzed. But if you pay attention to what they say and how they act, their overall presentation is that they won. They believe that they did enough damage to the Borg cube in order to be able to have won the encounter. And now they want to examine it in, in, in case they encounter any other ships or any other Borg. So, And then they're a little bit surprised, not massively, but just a little bit surprised at how many people are still alive and functional on the ship. And then they find out it's repairing, and that's pretty much the moment when it clicks, when they're like, oh. Now, I get what Hurley was going for with this. I think he could have done a better job of it. But the idea is, this is the arrogance that Q referenced. Q flat out says, how arrogant you are to believe you're ready. And, and Picard argues back immediately and strongly, no, not arrogance, not presumption. We are, we are determined, we are disciplined. But in these scenes, we can see, at least the intent is, that they are arrogant. They believed they got this. They believed that they faced some new threat, and they were okay. And while they got a little bit injured... Well, okay. I'm saying this wrong. They believed that they won a battle at great cost. They believed that the loss of those 18 crew and that brief encounter and skirmish was a big deal to them. And that right there says everything about this particular era of Star Trek in character. And I think this is accurate, because everything we've seen backs this up. This is the Golden Age winds of change, right? Everything's awesome. And what we are seeing here is that these people are so unused to just how bad bad can get that they think they just had a major battle, and though they had terrible losses of those 18 people, they managed to, to survive and, and succeed. And it is the knowledge of the fact that the other ship is just repairing and that it's fine, which kind of just sort of is like the whiplash of, oh, we didn't do anything. And then they run. 
which is probably one of the most sensible decisions Picard ever makes. And then, of course, the Borg ship follows, because why wouldn't it? It follows while repairing itself, actually. And then it starts bringing down their shields, very deliberately, very precise. It's that scalpel thing again, the efficiency. We could do all kinds of other things, but instead we're just going to drain your shields. You got any problem with that? No, of course you don't, because there's nothing you can do. Oh, you're firing back at us? Yeah, no, we already know how your weapons work, so that's not going to work. And over the course of this rapid pace of the finale, everyone on board, most notably Picard, really starts to realize just how incredibly outmatched they are. And Q is there at every step of the way to hammer that point in. One of the problems in fiction in general is that uh, is the escape sequence. We need to get away. We need to run. We need to get to the, the phone to leave the Matrix, right? The problem is most escape sequences have like an exit clause. Like if you manage such and such, then you have successfully run away and the enemy can no longer catch you for whatever reason. Sometimes this is well written, like the Matrix example. Sometimes this is terrible and makes no sense. But you can tell here Picard was thinking with that mentality. We just need to get away. It is Q who informs him there is no getting away. Even if you were faster than them, they would just keep, keep coming after you. They would follow you until your engines dried out. And they would just keep coming because they can do that. They are interested in you and your technology, and they have decided it is something of value to them. The end. And that kind of absolute relentlessness. Riker actually flats out calls them a juggernaut earlier. That helps to once again add to that overall dread of the Borg. Because, and this is another thing that, that Q establishes very early on that would become a hallmark of the, of the Borg. You can't beat the Borg by killing a few of them or destroying a few of them. That's not how that works. I believe Q's exact phrasing is, the essence of what they are endures. You know, you can't hurt the collective. All you, and it's, it's something that's been a continuous theme throughout Star Trek. I've argued this for so many years with so many Star Trek fans. I shouldn't say argued, but discussed this. Because you can't beat the collective. Not functionally, not really. How do you beat the collective? You can destroy a ship, yeah. You can beat back a fleet, even. You might be able to stop a few drones or prevent your own assimilation. But you have not defeated the Borg. Because the Borg still are. And as long as a Borg is, the Borg are. That's, that's really, in my opinion, the single most terrifying aspect of them as a culture, if you could call it that. And so Q just lays out how immensely screwed they are. Um, and there's this wonderful bit. I swear Hurley doesn't understand anything. It's like, we will fire torpedoes, but those could destroy the Enterprise. Really? Like a couple torpedoes detonating nearby could destroy the Enterprise? I mean, this is a Galaxy-class cruiser here, right? I mean, I know torpedoes are worse against hull than shields, but seriously? Anyways. Um, so then Picard finally says, right. You wanted to frighten us. We are frightened. You wanted us to feel inadequate. I would say, right now, that that applies. You wanted me to say, I need you. I need you, Q. And he, and he swallows his pride and accepts the escape. Now, what's most interesting to me is there's another little bit of subtlety here. There are two possibilities. Either the Borg know the Q exist, or they do not. If they know the Q exist, then they know that what just happened was the Q interfered with them taking this ship, which would massively increase their interest and explain why would they would be have such a thing for the humans in the coming years. 
or the Federation in general. If they do not know about the Q, then this ship, which was seemingly powerless and by their own scans and analysis could do nothing against them, somehow escaped them in a way that they couldn't follow, which would massively increase their interest. So one way or another, that little right at the end there, guaranteed that the Borg will be coming, one way or the other. And there is a wonderful moment where Guinan and Picard are playing chess, and there's this very quiet, wonderful music. God, I love Ron Jones. Where, you know, he said, they will, now that they know you exist, they'll be coming. And Picard flat out admits maybe he really did do the right thing for, for the wrong reasons, a kick in our complacency. Because in front of Guinan, Picard is more willing to admit that he was actually complacent. There's one last thing I want to share here. It's a quote. It's a great quote. I've got it right here. It's a quote by Q. And in my opinion, it is arguably the definitive quote of Star Trek The Next Generation. I know that sounds like a strange thing, but to me it really feels like it encapsulates TNG in one sentence. If you can't take a little bloody nose, maybe you ought to go back home and crawl under your bed. It's not safe out here. It's wondrous, with treasures to satiate desires both subtle and gross. But it's not for the timid. I have really enjoyed going back through this episode. Thank you for being with me on this little journey. I uh, hope to see you next time where we'll be encountering the Packleds. Boy, that's some tonal whiplash for you, isn't it? I'll see you around, guys. <laughs>